also uh, want to point out, too, it's also really wonderful to have Andrew here with us today, and I'm going to embarrass them both, but I look forward to this. Uh, but Andrew and Ashley, and um, as they look forward to joining their lives together, and I told Andrew uh, today that he married up, or he's going to marry up, and uh, he, I think he knows that. So congratulations publicly, congratulations to you guys on your engagement. And uh, yes, Anne-Marie, you're right, let's congratulate them on their uh, engagement. So we look forward to that, uh, that date um, in the future. Uh, it's just a wonderful thing um, to see the picture of Christ and his bride again in marriage. And um, I look forward to that day to celebrate with them. Um, I just, I, just again, I just want to say publicly thank you to Donovan and uh, stepping in. Um, some of you have asked me, hey, what, what's going on with, the, with worship? I know we had some folks singing, and now they're not, and that sort of thing. Uh, we're just taking a little bit of a break. Uh, Ryan's traveling a lot with Landon because he... Landon plays a, a, a basketball circuit this time of the year, and so he's about three months, two and a half months. They're pretty busy with that, and because other, you know, um, folks have time to just kind of rest. So I just really appreciate Donovan stepping in, and and uh, you know, he remember, remember, he he went to song leader school, and so so he does a great better than me. So I just really appreciate that, and um, just makes the our music and worship so much more excellent. So thank you, brother, uh, for that. Let's turn our attention this morning uh, to the text, 1 Corinthians 14. And as we do, I'd like to pray um, uh, for our time together in the Word this morning. Join me as I pray. Lord, we turn our attention this morning to your Word. And this is not another book. This is the very word of God that we have. The scripture tells us that the word of God is living and it is active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the divisions of our soul and of our spirit, to the very joints and of marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. Your word tells us that our heart is desperately wicked, even beyond what we know. May we remember that no creature is hidden from the sight of the text, the scriptures, that no creature is hidden from your sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes to whom we must give an account. So this morning we ask, we th- first of all, we thank you for this, this scripture. We thank you for your word. And we ask, God, that you would please be with us. May the scripture accomplish for us what it, sends, it, it intends to accomplish in our hearts and our minds. Specifically, God, we have been talking about life as a church together. And how pride can come in and create all sorts of tension and divisions. And Lord, that could happen here at this church family, our gathering. It could be that older folks look down on younger folks, or younger folks think that the, their way of worship today is, different, is better than how it was years ago. It could be that people from different, uh, different um, 
oh, categories of finance, could look down on others and think they're better or uh, what they have makes them more right with God. It could be differences of culture. It could be all sorts of, uh, of things what, based on the demographics here. Could really, pride could just, just rise up inside of us. That preoccupation with ourselves could ride up, rise up inside of us and could just hurt this church. And we know the opposite of that kind of life, a proud life, is a life of love. A life where we're not preoccupied with ourselves, but we defer and love and edify one another. And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to help us to learn that from our text today as we look at worship. Lord, would the word of God work in our hearts and change us to be more like you, more like Christ as we read out of this scripture this morning. So help us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The text that we're looking at today, I've entitled the message, Gathered Worship. And as we look through this, we come back. So chapter 14, if you're visiting with us or if it's been a while, and, you, and uh, or even if you just had a really tough week and you can't even remember what you did yesterday, right? Um, chapter four, 12 through 14 is dealing with an issue in the local church. An issue that's caused by pride, and that pride reared itself in its ugly head in the area of spiritual giftings. And so basically what happened is there's, there's some people in the church that said, ha-ha, my gifts are better than yours, you little plebes. And then there were some people in the church who, on the other, and there was, so they were very preoccupied with themselves. But then there were some people who thought they were less gifted because they didn't have a right understanding of what giftings are and how giftings are all equal. They just have different functions and roles, etc., and they looked at me. They were still pre- preoccupied with themselves, and they said, oh, woe is me. You know, the, the whole Eeyore complex. Both extremes are wrong. Both are examples of pride, and it's not healthy in a local church. And so Paul is coming, and he's saying, look, the answer to all of this is love. You need to have love. And last week we looked at specifically that in a gathered worship like this, love looks like edification where we use our different giftings like arms and legs and a body and it all comes together and it's beautiful. Again, if I, and I've said this multiple times, but if I walked into this room and I had two arms sticking out of my ears, one of two things would happen, well, I guess a bunch of things could happen. You would think, what's wrong with him? And you'd leave or you would think, and you probably ought to think what's wrong with him already, I know. But you would think, okay, this is, that dude is just like even more weird than I thought. It doesn't look right. It's not normal. It's not, it doesn't help. I mean, I would, you know, I don't know what, I, I mean, would I walk like this? I, I don't know. The point is, it's not healthy. And neither is a body of Christ that comes together and let's, we were, uh, I don't remember who I was talking to this morning. Oh, it was Doc. And Doc said, could you imagine, huh, Andrew, I hope Andrew can hear this in there. He said, could you imagine if this church was full of lawyers? If it was nothing but lawyers? You know, and he said, "Could you imagine if this church was full of engineers?" He said, "We there you are, Doc." You said, "What did you say? We'd all wear pocket protectors." <laughs> you know, could you imagine? And then telling on himself, he said, "Could you imagine if this church was nothing but arts people?" You know, we'd all be crying all the time, right, or whatever. We'd all artsy things or whatever. You know, or could you imagine if it was full of just preachers? You know, there'd be wrong with somebody all the time, right? How dare you? You know, you perfect person. <laughs> 
So if we had just those giftings in here, this wouldn't be a great place to be at all. It wouldn't be healthy. And, and Paul comes in and he says, look, we need each other. We have to have this. And so uh, that's the context in what's, what's going on here in this. And, and so uh, he, he comes and he's going to deal with So we're dealing with that. And today I want to finish up chapter 14 and this issue, chapter 12, um, through chapter 12 and through 14. And the title of the message, Gathered Worship. We need to look at some things specifically, kind of more like in a broad view, some things that deal with our worship here together, both their worship then, but our worship here together, uh, even here in 2021 or whatever year it is. A person once said, a pastor once said, love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of other people. In other words, love so oozes out of us and it comes out of us that it flows and we want to meet the needs of other people. That's what it looks like in the context of a gathered church. And I thought that was a really appropriate thought in the context of our study here in 1 Corinthians. This church, again, was peppered with an atmosphere where many believers were just so preoccupied with themselves and all sorts of tension and disunity. But Paul's tone throughout this letter, and we made this case weeks ago, he didn't just all of a sudden come up in chapter 13 and said, oh, hey, there's this thing called love. No, all along, starting in the first few chapters, he, he was laying the groundwork. He was not hinting at it, but more or less hinting at it in his writing, hey, love is the answer. And then he gets, we get to chapter 8 and verse 1, and he said, look, you all have this knowledge, but that's not working. Love builds up. So then we get to, and it's almost like Paul is writing this letter, and he said, you know what, I just need to stop here for a minute, and I need to not, and he has this chapter 13, it's like an aside, where he says, this is what love is. Not in the side and in the sense of it's less important than what he's saying. It's actually the thrust of what he's saying. Throughout the whole letter, you have all this tension and all this junk that's going on in your church. It's because you don't love each other. And so he writes all about that in chapter 13. And then at the beginning of our text that, that has been read the last, the last two weeks, what is the very first two words of chapter 14? Pursue what? Love. So it's within that context of love that Paul starts off his teaching again in chapter 14 and what love looks like in the gathered church's edification last week. This is clearly the dominant thought of chapter 14. Notice with me. Look at verse 3. Speaking of the use of, the gift, uh, use of gifts, it says, for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Look at verse 5. It says, so that the church may be what? Edified. Verse 12 says, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, excuse me, <clears throat> sorry. He says, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. Verse 26, everything must be done so that the church may be what? Built up. Verse 31, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The whole point of what he's saying is here is that love is the overflow of joy that meets the needs of others within the context of gathered worship. We need to be edifying one another. What does that word edify mean? It means to make, literally it means to make more able. Make more able. 
Make more able to do what in the context of a gathered church? Make more able, and as we say it around here, to behold, to enjoy, and to pursue Jesus. Isn't that why they gathered together? Isn't that why we gathered together? It's to behold, to enjoy, and to pursue Jesus? Absolutely, that's why we're here. This isn't a social club. This is a group of sinners. This is a group of, of people down and outers in the earth. We're, we're, this is not our home. We're all just foreigners right now. We're all just, you know, passing through. And as we pass through and as we live this life, we want to do that together to behold, enjoy, and pursue Jesus. That's why we gather. And so God helps this church, helps this church in Corinth, but he also helps us in practical ways to behold and to enjoy Jesus in our worship. And so I want to look at that gathered worship to get together today. We're going to... Oh, boy. Look at that. It went through really fast, and it shouldn't have done that. Well, there you go. There's the outline for number one anyway. Number one, let's look at the disciplines of worship, all right? And we're going to look at four of them. Pretend you don't see them yet. All right. We see the disciplines of worship. First is the discipline of clarity. We see that in verse number nine. Verse nine, uh, the scripture uh, says there, I'm going to get my... Uh, eyes on here. Verse number nine says, so with ourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you, it's like you're just speaking into the air. First to this discipline of clarity. Paul here uses the illustration in context of one playing an instrument. If somebody plays an instrument and just blasts nonsensical notes altogether, then no one will understand the music. Or, to put it differently, if you have a group of people, and, we, and I pray for this often, that God would continue to lead instrumentalists here, and let's just say that there's a group of instrumentalists up here, then all of a sudden, one of the, one of the uh, people uh, just decided to go off and do some sort of little, um, you know, uh, Back to the Future McFly rift on his guitar or something like that, and like totally distract everything, everybody would like, like what's going on here? It would be distracting. There would be no understanding of what's going on. And so it is with gathered worship. We might not deal with the same issues in the worship today as what they were talking about here, talk specifically about multiple people speaking in tongues and the chaos that came with that. And so he, he lists a variety of different things here, these, these disciplines of worship, one of which is clarity. Our worship should not be distracting from the ability to behold, enjoy, and pursue Jesus. That's why we worship decently and in order. Some of you think, oh, you know, it's so controlling to have a bulletin. And then, and no, that's not the point. It provides clarity. Helps us to behold, enjoy. And I'll, make, I'll, I'll uh, mention more of that here in just a little bit. Secondly, worship should be engaging. We say that in verses 13 through verse 19. Verse 14 specifically says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Then he goes on to say there in those verses that both the mind and the spirit should be engaged in worship. This is what Jesus means, or one of the things that he means, when he says in the, in the Gospel of John that his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Commenting on this passage, one pastor said, Together, the words spirit and truth mean that real worship comes from the spirit within and is based on true views of God. 
Worship must have a heart, but worship must also have a head. Worship must engage your emotions, and worship must engage your thoughts. In other words, the, in other words, both the mind and the emotions have to be engaged in the spirit. The whole person has to be engaged in worship. If not, truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full, full of unspiritual fighters. But emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates, he calls it, flaky people who reject the discipline of rigorous thought. You see, true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Friends, when we come together, we don't ever want to overemphasize one to the exclusion of the other. We want to engage our emotions in our worship, but we also want to engage our heads in worship. We want to engage the whole person, and that is what, is what true worship looks like, or how we come about to have true worship. Notice that worship should be orderly. We see this in verses 26 through verse 33. Verse 26 says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. You know, when we gather together for worship, there are multiple ways that we can worship together. This just lists like a few of them. We can sing. There's a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, again, given in the historical context uh, on the historical redemptive timeline. Today, that might might look a little bit different. But as we come together with all these different components or aspects or expressions of our worship, the worship should be orderly or what won't it do? It says here, let all things be done for building up. And if it is not orderly, if, if we come together and it's just a hodgepodge of stuff, then it's not going to build up. It will only frustrate and it will only confuse. In verse 27, it says, the, the scripture says that, look, if there's a couple people there and they're speaking in tongues, there's got to be an interpreter. If there's no interpreter, then what? Sit down. As a matter of fact, there can only be three people that that can speak in tongues. So if you're the fourth dude, guess what? Tough luck. Sit down. And it has to be orderly. And then he goes on to say, look, if there's a guy that's given a prophecy, if he's prophesying in church, and then, so back to, I was picking on me and Nick last week. If Nick's prophesying, and I kind of tug on his shirt and say, I got a new, you know, I have a prophecy now. Guess what? He has to stop mid-sentence and sit down and let me speak. That's what it says. I think the whole point of that is that things have to be done orderly. Because if there's not order, then there's, there's, there can be chaos, which would be stri- distracting from doing what? Beholding, enjoying, and pursuing Jesus. Listen, someone might think, well, doesn't that just kill the spirit? Doesn't that just kill the spirit, what the spirit's trying to do, you know? Shouldn't you just come together and, yeah, maybe have some little bit of structure, but, and, and I, my answer to that is no. Why? Because God, isn't God jealous for his glory? Doesn't God want people to behold, enjoy, and pursue Jesus? Absolutely he does. Can a gathered Can a gathered worship be so formal or external that it quenches the spirit? Yes, it can be so formal that it does. Sure it it can. But 
it is proper, one of the things that helps worship to be good worship, to be good worship, is that it is proper order that enhances the opportunity to behold Jesus. This was God's design. And so God wants people to see Jesus. He's not trying to be some killjoy where he says, okay, Nick's prophesying. Matt has a word. Now he's got, you know, Nick's got to sit down because he doesn't like Nick. That's not it at all. There, there should be order, proper order in our worship. So that way when we come together, not winging it, but when we have, and not having, there has to be guidance. There has to be planning. If there's not, then it's not helpful. Whereas verse 40 says, all things should be done decently and in order. So when we worship together, one of the practical disciplines is that there should be order to the worship. Along with order in that verse is that fourth thing. That word is the next thing, and you see it, the word decently. That word decently means appropriate. That is, our worship must be a proper. The worship of believers must be fitting to who God is. It must be concerned with content as well as function and style. We don't develop, I won't develop this now, but Paul is describing here this appropriate worship of chapter 15, which we're going to get to starting next week. And chapter 15, if you realize, you know, if, and you already realize this, is all about the resurrection. Appropriate worship looks like what he's going to talk about in chapter 15, or is based upon, the content is based upon what he's talking about in chapter 15, the resurrection. Because if there was no resurrection, then guess what? What we're doing here today doesn't make sense. We can be golfing. And so it has to be appropriate, and it has to be proper. 15, chapter 15 and verse 2, he tells them, he says, Hold fast to the word that I preached to you, for I delivered to you as of first importance. What was that he delivered to them? That was the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel. That's how we worship. Our worship must be appropriate. In other words, it must be based upon the gospel. I've said this before many times. If, you're coming, if you come here or if, you, if you're watching online and you think that this is going to be a current events platform or so, some sort of political stump that ever happens here, you're wrong. There is no hope in that. But we will come together every week. And you know what we will do? We will get, we will behold, enjoy, and pursue Jesus. Because he is the way, the life, and the truth. Because he is what gives us value and worth. He is where we find our, our, our home. He is where we, yeah, does, does the gospel influence the way we see politics and life? And, and Yes, absolutely. But we're not going to come here. And we're not going to talk about that stuff. I don't know about you, but every week we're bombarded with all of those things and the voices that continue to, to, to speak to us throughout the week. We need to come together so that way we can behold. That's why we need to come together. That's appropriate for us to, to, just to concentrate on the gospel, not the peripheral stuff. So these are some of the broad disciplines that, Paul pull, that we see in the text that Paul says, hey, look, when you gather as a church, Corinth, or Berean Bible Church, guess what? You need to have worship that is clear, that is engaging the whole person, not to one extreme or the other, that is orderly, and it focuses on the right thing. 
May this be our guide. These disciplines be our guide as we worship. Second, Paul addresses the desire of worship. Let's see. Okay, we're going to get all three of those too. All right. Secondly, the desire of worship. All right, that's the one right there. The desire of worship. What do I mean by the desire of worship? Look at verse, uh, well, what I mean by the desire of worship is basically that it's the desire to experience Jesus. And I'll explain that here in a minute. All right? The desire of worship is to experience Jesus. All right? Let me explain. Starting in verse 23, I want to read, let's look at that verse. It says, if therefore the whole church comes together. Okay, pause there real quick. When it says the church, who's it talking about? Believers or unbelievers? Believers, okay? So he's saying, look, when, the, when believers get together, okay? All right, unpause. And all speak in tongues. And then he talks about two more groups of people. And outsiders and unbelievers enter. Okay? Talking about three groups of people. Believers, these outsiders, and then these unbelievers. What it, now, unbelievers we get, people who are not of the faith that reject what does he mean, though, when he says outsiders? Well, this original word literally means an unskilled person, or we might say it today, an amateur. Believers, unbelievers, and amateurs come. What does that mean? We might classify these, this type of folks today as seekers. People who are familiar with religion, people who are religious even, but might not know the truth, or might think the truth is somewhere else, or maybe they they try to experience all sorts of different truths. The point is, is that there are times or there is the ability to have all three, obviously believers will come together to worship like we do each week. But sometimes in our gathering, there will be seekers and unbelievers as well. And what should happen, the desire of that gathering Right? The desire of the worship is that all three should experience Jesus. Verse 23 says, you don't want these people that are outsiders or unbelievers to come in and think that you're out of your minds. All right, now let me, quick explanation of what's going on here. When you read through, when you read through this, right, when Glenn read it this morning, it might be a little bit confusing, and I understand. Verse 21 and 22 could be a little confusing, so let's read those. It says, in the law, it is written, with our tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. And prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Okay? What is he doing? It kind of almost seems like Paul's contradicting himself. Or this is what's going on. This verse Paul is quoting, actually, is a passage from Isaiah chapter 28. And what's happening there in Isaiah 28 is the people of God, Israel, had rejected God yet once again. And so God, to draw them back to himself, what does he do? He sends them a judgment, a punishment, right? Makes sense. You break the law, there's a punishment. You do something God asks you not to do, there's a punishment, okay? Well, the form of punishment that came this time was in the form of the Assyrians. And what God says in Isaiah 28 is, basically this. Let me summarize it. Listen, you're not going to listen to me. You're not going to do what I ask you to do. You're not going to love me with your whole heart. And you can understand what I'm asking, and you can hear me, and I'm speaking to you, and you get what I'm saying, and you're still rejecting it. Fine. I'm going to send you a people, 
and you can understand what they're saying. Now, you're like, I don't really get it, all right? Well, the best illustration I got for this is this. You ever been to a foreign country where you didn't know the language? So I've had the privilege of going to South America dozens of times, it seems like. And, and the, two, the two places I go, uh, or have gone, one in Brazil, and they speak Portuguese, and the other one is Uruguay. Uh, Uruguay, I speak a little bit of Spanish, so I, I can get in trouble there, but that's about it. But when I go to Brazil, I, I have, like, no idea what they're saying. You know, I know the word for peanut butter, and that's about it. And so, oh, and I know the word no. It's universal. But I'd go down there, and my friend Nathan is a missionary there, and I would go down, and I remember the first time I went down there was a group of, I think there were 20, 23 of us or so, somewhere around there. Uh, my wife and I took a group of teenagers down on a mission trip. And so I remember we get down there, and we're there, and I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but, so I'm talking to Nathan, all right, who's an American, well, he's actually Brazilian, he was born in Brazil, but he's American as well, and he and I are talking English just fine, but then there was this other guy, his, his name, um, well, there was a whole bunch of people uh, there, but his name was Wagner, and Wagner didn't, didn't speak a whole lot of English, I mean, very, like me with, with Portuguese, and I remember trying, I, I liked Wagner. Matter of fact, Wagner, came, he's in the U.S. now, and I was the best man in his wedding. We became very close over the next many years. And so uh, I remember talking, and I w- was, was trying to talk to Wagner, but he didn't understand, you know, it was just that language barrier. And so Nathan had to interpret, right? And so I would say something to Nathan, and Nathan would, be, would, would tell him whatever. But, like, so I would ask a question like this. Hey, Wagner, can you take me to the corner store so I can get a Coke? Let's just say something like that. I don't know what took so long, but it seemed like 20 minutes later I would get an answer. I mean, I would say that, and then all of a sudden, Nathan would start speaking Portuguese to Wagner, and Wagner would be shaking his head, and then they would kind of chuckle about something. And I'd be like, what? And I'd be like what's so funny? You know, I'm looking like, you know, what did I do? And then, all of a sudden, like, in Portuguese, it's very expressive. All of a sudden, like, they, were, they would turn on a dime, and they would get very serious and expressive. And then I was like, oh, no. You know, did I say something? What did I do now? The whole point is, I was in a context where I didn't know what was going on, and it was very frustrating. I wanted to know what they were saying. And sometimes I would get even more frustrated. I would, like, a 20-minute conversation, I'd look at Nathan, I'd say, okay, what did you guys just talk about? Oh, we just talked about you going to get that Coke at the corner market. It took 20 minutes. You obviously said more than what, more than that. Nah, that's about all we said. You know, it was very frustrating. And so if you're put into that context where you can understand nothing what's going on, you don't want to be in that context. It's frustrating, and the sooner you get out of it, the better. This is essentially what, G- what God does as a, as a form of judgment or punishment to Israel. Hey, look, you're not going to listen to my voice. Well, then you know what? I'm going to give you a voice that you really don't understand, and it's going to be frustrating. You can understand me, but you'll never understand them. So it came in the form of a different tongue. That makes sense to us. And so in context, what he's saying here, here is... Um, that it is a negative sign. Like these unbelievers or these outsiders, these amateurs, these seekers come into this context that is the local church and they see all of this chaos going on. What are they going to think? They're not going to think, oh, cool. This is amazing. God is here. Let me have more of that. They won't think that. 
They won't see that as a presence of God. So therefore, there must be certain disciplines. Why? So that they can experience God. Okay, now I'm going to answer, what do I mean by experiencing God? Let's look at verse 24 and verse 25. But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everybody is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. You see, when this church gathered together, the desire was for everyone to behold, enjoy, and pursue Jesus. Or as the text says, fall down and worship. That's what I mean by experience. That's what the text means by experiencing God. Literally, or figuratively, falling down to worship. Literally, perhaps you've come to the place in your life where you've worshiped and you've realized some things and it literally has made you fall down. Or maybe figuratively, your heart has fallen down. Either way, the text tells us the reason that we fall down is because the secrets of our hearts are laid bare. Listen, believers, when we come to worship together, and it doesn't happen all the time, it doesn't happen every week, but you want to understand your heart like you never have before. When you gather together, you want to understand your heart like you never have before. You want to be, you want to experience a sweet wounding of your pride. And you also want a joyous reminder of what Jesus has done for you. You want to come together and you want to glory and awe in the person and the work of Jesus. And so that way, like when we sing, I, just as I am, without one plea, right? You look at yourself and you say, I don't have anything. I have nothing to bring you. I come broken to be mended. I come wounded to be healed. What are you doing in that whole, why, why, are, why do we sing what we sing? Because you want to experience Jesus. You want to what? You want to be, behold and enjoy Jesus and the truth about Jesus. You want to fall down and worship. That's what the text is getting at. The desire of worship is to fall down and experience Jesus for believers. But not only for believers, also for unbelievers. If you're here and you're a seeker, if you're watching online or you hear this later, you're a seeker and unbeliever, there is a need for you to see your heart like never before too. There's a need to understand the person and the work of Jesus, what he did for you on behalf of you. 2 Corinthians says, he became sin for you who knew no sin. Why? So that way you could become righteous. So that way when God looks at you, he doesn't see you as a sinner, but there's that, like we talked about in life group this morning, in my life group, there's that great exchange, your sin for his righteousness that's applied to your account. So that way when God looks at you, he looks at you as white as snow, as forgiven, not as a lawbreaker. That's that great exchange. If you're a seeker or an unbeliever, you need to be sweetly wounded by the grace of God as well. And if, when you see that, and you see who you are, and you see who Jesus is, then perhaps for the very first time, 
you will fall down in worship as well when you understand that truth. That is the desire of worship. I do want to caution us as believers in our context in this church, I want to caution us this morning that the ultimate desire for worship isn't information, nor is it inspiration. This is the head and the heart argument that I talked about a little bit ago. The goal of gathering isn't only instruction or learning. We want to do that. This is oftentimes found in conservative circles where it's nothing but learning or instruction, where you feel like you're going to school. Where gathered worship amounts to nothing more than an exchange of information without engaging the heart. Believers just sitting on their hands and soaking up data. But neither is the goal of gathering only inspiration. This is oftentimes found in charismatic circles where gathered worship amounts nothing to more than a frenzy of emotional manipulation. Believers not engaging their minds. And may I caution us as a church, as a gathered church, may we never go to either extreme. Both have to be present. But only as they serve the purpose of beholding, enjoying, and pursuing Jesus. Last thing this morning, there are two things in the text that are, that are discussions related to worship. All right, so let's look at that. Number three, discussions that are related to worship. Now, the last couple weeks, we've talked about some things that some would call controversial. And I have been making the case, I understand that they're controversial, and I understand that not everybody will agree, but I want to be as faithful as, I will be as faithful as I understand the text to be. Even, uh, and I think that there are things where we can agree to disagree on. I don't think there's separation issues. We don't make a big deal about them here. I don't think you should make a big deal about them or whatever, but nonetheless, they are some things that we need to discuss. And there's two things in the text, and so I want to look at both of those. One, first of all, is a big cultural issue, and secondly, what is prophecy, all right? Because I've talked, so I've told you throughout our study, when we got to 12 through 14, there are like scads of questions you might have, and I don't want to, I don't want to shy away from those questions. I want to, I want to address those questions, all right? So the first of all is the, is the, is the more hot button one, and that is the issue uh, discuss, the issue regarding men and women in worship. What does gathered worship look like? And specifically, when we gather together for worship, the Bible says something in verse 34 and verse 35. So let's, let's look at that, right? It'll be the first discussion. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful, disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Okay, this passage, yeah, you're laughing because you know. And you're thankful that you're not up here, I know. This passage comes across as, at best as archaic. But most likely it comes across as very misogynistic. I get it. This could sound, this could, these verses could sound very horrific. The reason why they sound very horrific is because the historical distortions, um, cultural injustices that women have gone through, um, the implications of inferiority. Um, when you hear the word sub, when you hear the word submission, you think of immediately you think of inferiority or rejection or something like that, restriction. 
the, the, this is just is just a subject that does not win any modern audience over. All right. So I know I'm in a tough spot, but would you consider this just for a moment? We need to remember that this was written in a certain context, and God gave all of us that context. We can understand it culturally, but also was also written. Um, this this wasn't in other words. This wasn't written in a vacuum. Okay. Now I won't develop the whole thing here, but back on March the 14th, there was a message that I entitled the Symphony, and I developed this whole thing more because we dealt with the the fringe of we, we dealt with this issue as a whole back on March the 14th. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that. If you're watching online, if you're hearing this, go back and listen to that. It, it, it's, I develop it just a little bit more than I'm going to do here. I'm just going to give you the highlights here. Remember the context that man was created. Both men and women were created by God. Man was created by God from what? Dust. And the woman was created from the rib of a man. They were both created. They were created differently. But nonetheless, they are both equally as human. Just because man was made of dust, you know, and this is where you ladies can kind of joke with us, right, and say, oh, you're... You're a dirtbag, aren't you, right? Because you were created from dust, whereas I was created from flesh, you know. You know, both are equally human. And the differences of creation between men and women are not only physically noticeable, but in Genesis chapter 2, men were tasked to work the garden. And then in chapter 2 and verse 19, men were tasked to name all of the creation including the woman. The woman, she was created, and the text tells us that she was created as a perfect partner, a suitable helper in and for their union and their work together on earth. Even though there were these differences, and those differences from the creation account are very clear, these differences... God looked at all of that, and what did he say about all of his creation? I think he said it like five or six times. The text says, behold, he looked at all of it, and he said that it was good, right? He said, this is good. The differences weren't bad, friends. The differences weren't bad. They were both created in God's image, but he created them differently, complementing each other. And when that happens... March 14th, it's like a beautiful symphony. Each instrument plays their part in harmony and beautiful and enjoyable music happens. No instrument in an orchestra is ever jealous or angry with another instrument. And neither should it or was it designed that way, the differences between men and women and things that we call gender roles. You say that word and, and, and that word is a hot button issue, I get it? The roles are different, but that doesn't make women inferior, nor does it make men superior. It's just different. Also remember, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 3, we read this, that the head of Christ is God. Remember that passage? Gender roles are designed in the likeness of God the Father, in God the Son. 
the authority, so the authority of Christ or the authority over Christ is God. Now, that sounds really weird to say. Because after all, Christ is fully God, is he not? Absolutely is. God is not better than Jesus. Jesus is God. God doesn't have more power than Jesus. Jesus is just as powerful as God is. They have, they're the same. God doesn't have more knowledge than Jesus, for Jesus is just as omniscient as God is. They are equal and one in every way. Here's what, it, here's what that means, as one professor put it, and I'm going to quote him again like I did back on the 14th. God the Son submits to God the Father while still being equal in essence and value. The Son is not inferior just because he submits to the Father. Meaning, just as Jesus is an inferior to God, neither does this mean that the wife or the woman is inferior to her husband. Just as Jesus divinely submits in the economy of the the Trinity to God the Father, it doesn't mean that he's inferior. Neither does this mean that the wife is inferior to her husband and and her role. It doesn't mean that the husband is superior because he has a different role either. All of this means, and it doesn't mean to be demeaning, so that back in context, chapter 11, and then Genesis, in a marriage relationship, the man as the head doesn't demean the wife. It's just a difference of role. Now, someone might ask, well, isn't this an assault on a woman's dignity that she has a different role, that she's not the head? And the answer to that is verse 3, chapter 11, verse 3, the head of Christ is God. Wasn't it assault on the dignity of Jesus? No, it wasn't. They just, however, in the economy of the Trinity, there were some differences. And yet, equality and oneness. And the Bible says that when a man and woman come together, they are what? One flesh. And that's not talking just physically. That's talking about everything in life. That word one flesh in Genesis literally means person. When they come together, they are one person. Meaning, God never meant or or communicated that there was an inferiority or superiority kind of roles or less dignifying of one position to the other. He never meant that. Has it become that at times? Yes, it has been perverted to become that. Absolutely has. But that's not what God intended. Now, within that rubric, that broad heading, when it comes to a gathered worship, within gathered worship, when you have men and women together, based on their gender roles, one of the roles that men had in a church was to lead in the teaching or the authority over a corporate gathering. 1 Timothy chapter 2 mentions this as well. In 1 Timothy 2, it's tied back to creation as well. Paul's point is very simple here. When the church is gathered together, there are certain roles that are practiced, not because of superiority or inferiority, but simply because that is the way that God designed it. So the men will lead, and the women should let them lead. Right? So when it says in the text that women should be silent in church, it's not saying that you can't speak at all. Okay? That's never been this church's position. Let me prove it to you. Do we support any single lady missionaries? 
have they ever come off the field and stood up here and given a report about what God is doing in the field of, oh, let's say Mexico or Papua New Guinea? Yes. They're telling about the joys and the praises and the things that God has done. That doesn't mean that they're leading or they're usurping authority over man or male leadership. It doesn't mean that. What they're saying is important for the body to hear. Hey, look, we've been praying for you for all this time. We've been, and so why don't you come on up here and why don't you share what God's going on? They're, is, is that what the text means, that they have to be silent and sit down? The answer is no. It's not what that means. So we don't believe here, and we've never believed here that women are inferior. We just believe that there are different roles, as we understand the text here, as I understand the text, that men will lead and that women should let them. Paul's not promoting misogyny. He's not. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 16, Paul sings the highest praise to some women. He says, in chapter 16, he mentions Phoebe, a deaconess. He mentions Junia. He mentions Rufus's mom. He mentions a lady named Julia and others. They were key partners in the ministry with him. He couldn't have done it what he did without them, is what he's saying in Romans 16. He says, greet them. Thank you for them. Please tell them I said hello. They're such key partners in ministry. That's not misogyny. That's for not promoting inferiority, is it? God used Deborah as a prophet in the Old Testament and a judge. You can read about her in Judges chapter 4. Huldah was, was a prophetess in 2 Kings. What about the prophetess in Isaiah chapter 8? Or what about Miriam? Friends, not for a minute do I think God intended for gender roles to communicate anything negative. Jesus actually, do you remember in our study a little bit, a little bit ago when we talked about singleness? Remember? Jesus actually came and elevated the status of women in Corinth. The culture of the time said to single women, you're nothing without a husband and a family. You can't advance and you can't belong without them. But Jesus comes along on the scene and he says, no way. You don't find your value or, or your worth in a man or in a marriage or having a family. You find your value and worth in what? Being created in my image. You find your value and worth in being a believer in me. You can be exactly what God created you to be without a husband. Further in context, he's already in, in context of chapter 12 through 14, he's already told two other people that they can't speak. So it's not like he's just singling out women, saying, huh, you can't speak cause, just because you're a woman. He told the person that was speaking prophetically, if, the, if another guy has a, a, a fresh word, because it says if it comes to his mind, that guy's got to sit down and shut up, and the other guy gets to stand up. He says, sit down, be quiet. It's part of the disciplines, number one. If, the guy, if there's four people who want to speak in tongues, only three of them can. So fourth guy, sit down. Then he says, thirdly, look, ladies, you need to sit down and not speak in this context. Now, in other words, the point is, he's not singling them out. He's also told two other groups to just be quiet, and he's said it nicely. I'm kind of saying it in a way where you, I'm trying to make a point here. We need to keep it in context. And he's saying, look, the design here, let's keep it with the design and the desire for edification and worship, not chaos and unity. And so the way we're going to do that is men are going to lead in the worship. 
I think that, I think that makes sense. I think, there, I, I think that that makes sense that God's not being misogynistic. He's not saying women are inferior. And I think if we look at it like that, I mean, if it wasn't demeaning for Jesus to submit to God the Father, then it can't be demeaning for anyone else if it's done the right way. All right, that's the first area. No tomatoes were thrown, so I'm going to continue to move on, all right? The second area of discussion is this idea or defining prophecy. What is prophecy? Well, as I understand it, just like the last two weeks we've talked about the issue of tongues, prophecy had come to mean something different than what it used to be. Typically, when we think of prophecy, what do we think of? Old Testament prophets, right? Thus saith the Lord. These were the folks, men or women, all right, both men and women, Old Testament prophets, that God used in special ways at special times to give out his words or remind people of his words. It didn't happen all the time, and it didn't happen through everyone. Not everybody was a prophet, right? Those are all, I think, just casual observations that we can come up when we look at the text when it comes to Old Testament prophecy. So when we get to the New Testament, what we often do is we carry that meaning into the New Testament. It's understandable that we would do that. But the prophet Joel in the Old Testament says this. In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Okay? Now we get to the New Testament, Acts chapter 2. Peter's preaching and Peter says what Joel said back then is what's going on today. Peter said, that was this. Remember that? Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came out. and Initially, there were about 120 people together. Those flames, I, I, wanted, I, I wish I could see a picture. Doc, you need to paint a picture of this, whatever you think it looks like. Those flames of tongues that are resting on each person, you know, and that room of 120 people. Man, that was a bright room, by the way, right? And, and they're in there, and then they had the ability to speak in tongues and, and all of this. Peter says, what Joel talked about, that day's here. This is the day. That was this. This is that. And so we get here to the New Testament, and prophecy is happening seemingly everywhere. Your sons and your daughters, men and women, everybody's doing this. So what it looks like is that everybody has the gift to do this prophecy thing. Now here's where we get into trouble. If we think prophecy then is the Old Testament thing, and we import that into the New Testament as the meaning, we might get ourselves into trouble, right? More on this in just a little bit. What does this mean, or what is this gifting? I'm led to believe that verses 36, chapter 14, verse 36 through verse 38 are the answer. Let me read those for you. This is very pivotal in understanding what New Testament prophecy is, okay? Paul says here, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Maybe you have a translation there that says, the NIV, by the way, 
I think, translates this really well. That word came, um, I think it's translated in NIV as originate. If you have one, I know some of you have that English translation. Verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God originated? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Verse 37, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he must acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. What this text is saying here is that, like he says in verse 3, or was it from you that the word of God originated? In other words, Paul is saying, did the word of God come from you, Corinthians? And the answer is obviously what? No. Then he says in verse 37, if you're a prophet, you've got to recognize that the things that I am writing to you, Paul says, are commands of the Lord. They carry a way different weight than what you're saying in this prophecy stuff. Because what I am saying are the commands. In other words, what I am saying are the actual words of God. In verse 38, if you ignore this and you ignore the commands that I am giving to you, then guess what? (laughs) You're going to be ignored. If you elevate your prophecy over the commandments that I'm giving you, you're going to be ignored. What I think is going on here, and these are, the, these are very pivotal for us to understand what prophecy is. I think Paul, God is drawing the line, but Paul is writing, and he's drawing a line through the sand, and he's saying that the New Testament prophecy is not the same thing that we think of as Old Testament prophecy. Like tongues had transitioned and there was some change in tongues, I too believe what's going on here is that prophecy of Old Testament saints, thus saith the Lord, which is the word of God, is not the same thing as New Testament prophecy. I think it transitioned. I think this ver- these verses show us that it's not new revelation. It's the Holy Spirit that now indwells everybody, not people occasionally, Old Testament, is now working in everybody with the word of God, with the truth of God. Why do I think that? Because in verse 29, what does it say to do? It says, when the prophets speak, what are you supposed to do with the prophecies that they, that they say? What does the text say? You're to evaluate them. Do you think Paul was saying, hey, the words that I'm writing to you in this letter, you have to evaluate this? No way, man. He was saying, what I wrote you are the commands of God. But the stuff that's going on in your church, these prophecies, you need to weigh those. Because those might not be might not be exactly what is true. You need to weigh them to see if they are true. Could there, could there be, some, yeah, somebody maybe is making a wrong application or, interpret, or interpretation of something. So weigh it. Make sure that it's right. Now, I think this shows us what is meant by the New Testament gift of prophecy. I don't think it's the thus saith the Lord. I think it's this is what I think the Lord is saying. Those are two different things altogether. And I think verses, these verses there in verse 36 through 39 point that out. And then go back to 29 and it says to weigh the prophecies. All right, now, final thing that I want to say about this <clears throat> before we're dismissed. Can I encourage you this morning? Not everybody believes what I'm about to say, but I, I'm, I believe this, tend to believe this. Take it for what it's worth. But I think that every believer is gifted with the gift of prophecy in the, in the context of what I just said. In other words... 
if all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, all believers are asked to, and that word prophecy in the Greek in the New Testament means to speak forth. I believe that all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. None of us would disagree with that part. And that we're all asked to speak forth truth about the gospel. I think every one of us, men, women, children, if children are indwelt with the Holy Spirit when they come to faith in Christ, I think we all have that gift. We all have the ability. It's easier for some than others. I've never been a stranger in my life. Some of you, you meet somebody and you're, you're scared and want to run the other direction. And that's not a knock on you. It's just we're, people are different personalities. But we all have the ability to speak forth. That's what the word prophecy means and prophesy means in the New Testament. All have the ability and the responsibility to speak forth the gospel truth. Based on that definition, I think we all have prophecy as a gift. So, in conclusion, if you have that gift, maybe you want to call it something different, fine. Maybe you don't agree with how I'm fine. But you can't disagree that if you're a believer, you, don't have, you do have the Spirit, and to you, have, you are required to speak truth. Every one of us has to do it. So whatever you want to call that, how's that going? Are you speaking truth so that way others can behold, enjoy, and pursue Jesus? That's the rule. We have these disciplines for when we gather together for gathered worship. The desire is the same for everybody, whether they're unbelievers or believers or in between, seekers, is to experience God, behold, enjoy, pursue. But friends, it doesn't happen just here. We're to take the gospel message out to our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends and family outside of these walls. How's that going? Other people need to behold, enjoy, and pursue Jesus, and it's our responsibility to tell them. So may we all use our giftings to this purpose because we want other people to fall down and worship, don't we? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time together in the Word. We thank you for these, this, this, this 